0: Good morning, everyone. I'm thankful uh, for the opportunity today to begin a new sermon series, uh, preaching through the letter of 1 Peter. And this is my first time doing this. Um, I've never preached through a book of the Bible before. So for me, this is something that's new. Um, So I would appreciate your prayers. But it's also for me something that's exciting, Um, that I'm excited about, because it's something that I believe in fundamentally. Um, I believe in the value of preaching through the scriptures systematically, consecutively, And for for various reasons, I've shared some of those reasons before, Um, just the the whole idea of biblical proportionality, that the Scriptures itself is perfectly balanced. So rather than picking topics that maybe I think are are interesting or of value, trusting that the Word of God is balanced and is a a healthy diet for us. So preaching through the Scriptures gives us that value, and that's one of the benefits. As well, um, you know, majoring in the majors, minoring in the minors, um, believing in the sufficiency of Scripture, that it is, it is the Word of God breathed out, as it says in Timothy, um, and that these words, this Scripture that we have, is in fact the very Word of God. And so whenever we come to it, we can, we can trust and have faith that God can and will speak to us and meet our needs through it. So it's my prayer that as we begin studying this book together, as, we, as, I, as I preach through the book of 1 Peter, that you will reap the benefit of being, first of all, immersed in the book, as we will take quite a few sermons to go through this, this letter that Peter wrote to these believers, and when we're finished, you'll, you'll understand what Peter was saying, why Peter said it, and it's my prayer that it will have the same impact upon you that it was meant to have to those believers whom it was written to. Because I think there's a lot of similarities in, in the context of, of what those Christians that Peter was writing to were going through and what we are going through in our lives. And I think that's part of the reason why... Um, I chose the book of 1 Peter. I, I didn't really have any particular motive in choosing this book. I, I was considering several different books and just settled on this particular one. And I think as I, as I began to study it and, and understand, you know, what it's really talking about, I, I began to appreciate the fact that it is a very relevant book um, to our lives and to our current circumstance. Really the book is all about hope in the midst of suffering and persecution. Hope in the midst of suffering and persecution. And when I look around, I think it's obvious that within this world, in this culture, there is an increasing opposition to Christianity. I think any of us who are Christians can see that fact. It's very clear. Um, And especially if we are going to live lives, um, godly lives, if we are going to speak the truth, if we are going to spread the gospel, if we are going to hold on to the faith, um, and not compromise, we are going to increasingly receive more and more opposition. This is nothing new. Right from the beginning, um, there um, has been this battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. I think that's that's been more evident throughout times of history, but it's clear right from the beginning. Right when Christ established his kingdom on the earth, there was essentially the beginning of a battle that was taking place. Between Christ's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. And the opposition is fierce, and it really should be no surprise that this is taking place to us. And just as Peter was trying to encourage these believers to stand strong in their faith and to live out their faith in the midst of persecution and suffering, likewise, we need to be encouraged to stand strong in our faith and to live out our faith. And we need to be reminded, like Peter reminded these believers, that we have a living hope. We have a living hope. And if I had to put a title to this sermon series, the whole series as a book, I would I would title it just that, A Living Hope. And it's taken from um, chapter 1, verse 3, which says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what an encouragement, what a comfort, what a firm foundation that we have as Christians, knowing that we, knowing that I, knowing that you have a living Hope and not just a hope that's kind of like a a wishful thinking type of hope. Really, this world, um, oftentimes, that's that's all that their definition of hope really can be—sort of a wishful thinking um, hope. You know, hoping things that things will go well. That's not a living hope. You know, hope is something that's fading fast in this world. Just look at the news. I mean, you look at what's going on with the the whole coronavirus and and all the fear that's associated with that, and people are, in many ways, freaking out, wondering what's going to happen. You know, what does the future hold? Um, People are scared, especially in my generation. I feel like, you know, when I look around at my peers and those who are are my age and younger, um, I'm growing up in a generation that is, in many ways, convinced that we are on the precipice of disaster. I mean, the things that they focus on, that they see as the biggest needs in this world, are all focused on just their worry of the future. Climate change, nuclear war, global pandemics like this coronavirus, you name it. You know, whatever it is, they see the future and they, they, they had this, this deep-rooted fear that is, that is then building and sort of producing within them an anxiety. And you see how much anxiety there is within young people today. You wonder, why is that the case? Why, why is there so much anxiety? People having nervous breakdowns. They're feeling overwhelmed, um, you know, anxious, depressed. I mean, on university campuses, they have safe spaces for people to escape to. It's like there's this, this anxiety that rests there. I think a lot of it is tied together with this whole idea of of not having a, right, a bright perspective of, of hope and not really having a true hope. Because their hope is a wishful thinking kind of hope. It's, it's a, I hope things go well. I hope that I don't get cancer. I hope World War III doesn't break out. You know, I hope the coronavirus doesn't wipe us all out. But who knows, right? They have no assurance. They have no assurance, no firm, living hope that they can cling onto. And that's why I think this book is so relevant and so practical in the world that we live in. As we see everything that's going on around us. And then, for us as Christians, as we face increasing opposition, we have a a living hope that we can cling on to. The hope that this world has is not the hope that Peter is talking about in his letter. It's not this wishful thinking hope. It's a living hope, it's a sure hope, it's a hope that is is grounded in the future, a future hope that does not fade away, a hope that is our, is our salvation and that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll get more into that this afternoon as we, we read through verses 3 through 5. Um, but it's a hope that's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, who rose again and is now exalted in heaven. And it is that in that reality that we have hope as we look to Christ, his resurrection, and the hope of future glory. So as we go through 1 Peter, let's keep that on our minds. Let I, I'm hoping that it that, that, that lingers within our minds. Peter goes into a lot of practical topics and subjects throughout his letter here that relate to Christian living. So I think it's a great book in that sense. But let's keep that in our mind as we go through this letter together, consider the, the, the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ and how that relates to every aspect of our lives. So let's read together um, 1 Peter chapter 1. This is an introductory sermon, so we're just going to read the first two verses this morning um, to help set the stage, and then God willing, I'll continue this afternoon with verses 3 through 5. But let's read together 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethania, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. May God bless the reading of his word. So before um, we get into um, looking at at the the verses that we've read here, I want to open up just with an apology. Um, And I'll just say this right at the beginning, because I have the feeling that as we go through this book, I'm probably going to mix up um, the names... Peter and Paul. Often, I may say Paul says this. Um, it's just because so many of the letters in the New Testament are written by Paul, and I'm, I'm sort of used to saying that. And I've already caught myself um, falling into that trap. So please forgive me ahead of time for that. Um, as we begin looking at at this letter, before we even, I guess, start looking at what Peter is saying here, this is an introduction to his letter or his epistle to these believers. Um, there are some questions that we need to ask, and they're questions that are related to context. And I think we all have an understanding of how important context is, um, when it, not just in the scriptures, but within everything. Context is critical. Um, in terms of this letter here, you ask questions like, who is the author? Who is he writing to? So who are the recipients? When was it written? Why was it written? What's sort of the general outline and flow? These are important questions to ask before we get into really um, the details of what, what Peter is saying here. And I don't want to dwell on this too much. I'm not, I don't, I don't think that, um, really we need to have a, um, sort of scholarly understanding of context we could spend. I've, I've done quite a bit of research, but I don't expect that, that everyone as we approach the scriptures would need that same level of knowledge. But I think all of us would agree that context is important. It's important to understand the framework in which something is written. Um, so we'll go through some of those details. Um, because a lot can be missed without properly interpreting it through the context with which it's written. Um, so first of all, Peter begins in verse 1 at the opening of his letter with these words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So unlike our letter writing today, um, many of us write emails, mostly. Um, some of us still write letters, handwritten letters. We all start by writing, by beginning um or by signing the letter with our names at the end. That's our practice. Um, but back in this day, um, it began that the standard um, beginning of writing a letter was to begin with your own name to describe who it was written from. And when you think about it, that really makes sense. Why wait till the end to say who it's from? It's good to have an understanding of, of who this is from right at the beginning. And oftentimes we do that. We'll flip to the end or we'll see it on the letterhead who it's from. But Peter states right at the beginning who it is that is writing this letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this letter was um, co-written, as he indicates at near the end of his letter, it was co-written by Silvanus, or Silas. And um, Silas clearly operated as some type of secretary or assistant to Peter. Um, There's good reason to believe that Peter was older um, in age when he wrote this letter. So perhaps his eyesight was failing. Um, perhaps Sylvanus or Silas was just more equipped to be able to write out the details of the letter more accurately. But whatever the case, it was co-written with Silas. And, um, I think, but, but the main author was Peter. And I think Peter doesn't require much introduction to most of us of all the biblical characters in the New Testament, I think Peter would be probably one of those ones that we seem to know the most about or, or be most familiar with those who are ch- those of us who are churched um, but he was one of the twelve apostles he was a pillar a leader and a pillar in the first church he was given his name Peter by Jesus in Matthew chapter sixteen his his original name was Simon or Simeon um, and uh, Jesus changed his name um, after after Peter dec- or after he declared that Jesus was the Christ. He said, "You shall be called Peter," which means a rock. And he said, "Upon this rock will I build my church." And Peter says himself in this letter that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle, the literal translation is "is one who is sent." That's what an apostle means. And by stating that, Peter is highlighting the fact. I think that he knows what his calling is. He's stating that I am an apostle. I am one who has been sent out by Jesus Christ himself. He knows that fact and he's stating that fact and and he he I think Peter had a real understanding after being with Christ and and being commissioned by Christ, sent out by Christ, he knew what his calling was. And I think it's just a good reminder for us to consider our lives and our calling. Do we know what our calling is in Jesus Christ? That we have been sent out by him to spread the gospel news. For Peter, that began first in Jerusalem. Jesus instructed them to stay there, um, to be uh, uh, to preach the gospel to the Jews. That was primarily his task. But we see how that expanded throughout his life um, as, he, as he moved later on beyond the borders of Israel. And we have good reason to believe that this letter that he was writing was actually written from Rome. Uh, Paul was was most likely in Rome when he was writing to these believers. We, we get that from chapter 5 where he says that the church in Babylon salutes you or he brings greetings from the church in Babylon. Babylon was oftentimes a code name for, for Rome. So he was he had now, his, his ministry had now expanded beyond the borders of Jerusalem and he's reaching out to believers that are scattered abroad, further and further, as the gospel is spreading throughout the nations. So this letter is written to, as it says, he goes on, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So let's talk first about the place and then the people. So the place, the the actual setting, um, not really that important, but it's located in Asia Minor, Um, These were cities uh, or regions within the Roman province of Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to these um, churches that had likely been established um, through the missionary journeys of of Paul or just the the spreading of the gospel. Churches that had been been planted in these places, but they were somewhat remote. They weren't centralized in um, in sort of the Rome or within Jerusalem, where where many of the, the roots of the believers were. And he addresses them as strangers who are scattered. Now, that seems like an odd title. I mean, you can relate that to the fact that they're a little bit further away geographically, but he calls them strangers who are scattered. The ESV translates it as exiles of the dispersion. Some other translations use the word aliens or foreigners. Um, These are all words that I think give a sense. They give a sense that... These people were really not settled, and they were not where they belong. He calls, in chapter 2, he he refers to them again, he says that they, he calls them strangers and pilgrims, pilgrims, think of pilgrims as, as those who are sort of wandering, they're not settled down, they don't have roots. So who are these people? Some scholars believe they were mostly Jews. Um... That had been displaced um by Rome. There was a time in history when Rome was trying to colonize um, um their you know different um colonies or regions that they were in under their domain, so they forcefully sent people out. So some people think these were Jews that were taken and sent far away. Um I am more of the persuasion that these were primarily Gentiles, um Gentile believers who had been converted to Christ um through the, the ministry that had gone out. Um and I think there's evidence of that in the text. Um Peter refers to them, he says in chapter 2, verse 10, In times past, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Not likely that he would have said that to the Jews, because the Jews always would have seen themselves as the people of God. Um, in chapter 4, he says in times past, um, he's speaking about their, their conduct and their life, he says, In times past, your life may suffice you to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when you walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries, wherein they think it that you strange that you not run with them in the same excess of riot, and they speak evil of you. This is talking about a lifestyle that really probably wouldn't have defined who a Jew was. Um, There was a sense of morality that Jews would have kept, but this really seems to, when he's describing these believers' former lives, it seems like he's describing the life of someone who was not a Jew um, and who had been conduct or living their lives in this way. Um, But clearly... Um, whoever these people were, as a result of, of this holy living, this change of lifestyle, they were being ostracized and they were being persecuted. And therefore, Peter addresses them as strangers and exiles and foreigners. And I think that's really the point. The point is that they did not belong. They did not fit in There was something about who they were that did not fit within the culture and the time that they were in, and they were feeling it, and the others could see that, and there was this resistance that was happening, um, and that was leading to to persecution. We don't know the extent of the persecution, but they're, they're struggling, they're suffering, and you can see that, and these believers did not belong. Um, They were living as exiles and foreigners in a strange land and they knew that fact. And really this is a question, this starts to, 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 to work in our minds, the question of citizenship. Where is our citizenship? You know, for them this world was not their home. I think they felt that. Whenever you, whenever you don't feel settled, whenever you feel that pressure, you're like, this doesn't feel right. I don't feel like I'm not settled. This is, this isn't where I should be. And that's how these believers felt and I think that's how a lot of us as Christians feel like increasingly in the world today. This world is not our home. We feel like strangers and exiles and foreigners in the world, or at least we should. And I I guess I could pose that as a question. Do you feel like a stranger and a foreigner and an exile in this world? This is a question of identity. All who walk by faith seek a city, it says in, in Hebrews, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11, all the heroes of faith died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them. And they confessed. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This is always how those who are God's children have felt on this world. We don't feel at home. We feel like this is not where we belong. And that's how Peter refers to these believers, as strangers and as pilgrims. Our citizenship is in heaven. We seek a heavenly home because our builder, whose builder and maker, is God. So what is the purpose of Peter's letter? We talked briefly about that. Um, Simply put, and this is just Sort of summed up in one one sentence here: the purpose of Peter's letter is to encourage and to teach these believers how to live victorious Christian lives in the midst of hostility and persecution. They're, as they learn to live out their faith um, while well, it's being tested and tried, and really, I think what what Peter the the fundamental question that Peter is answering within his letter here is how are Christians to deal with hostility and persecution? How do we deal with it? We, we all face it to varying degrees, and I think, like I said, I think we're going to face it more and more um, if we remain faithful to God and his word. Are, there's going to be increased resistance. How are Christians to deal with hostility and persecution when it comes Paul's or sorry, Peter is answering that question throughout that letter, that fundamental question: when the system of this world clashes with the kingdom of our God, what is the outcome? What is going to be the outcome within our lives, within your life? How should the people of God respond when they are put under pressure? Because Satan's desire, Satan's desire, is to discredit the church by destroying its integrity putting pressure on it to destroy its integrity and, and, and show what a sham Christians are. When their faith is tested, they fold. That would be Satan's desire. And that's what he seeks. And then to display that before unbelievers and say, look, these, these guys are, are, are fakes. But God's desire is that we would stand strong, um, that we would silence the critics through our godly lives, through the way that we live and the way that we conduct ourselves. And that's why this letter is so practical because it speaks to our lives and the testimony of our lives before unbelievers in the midst of suffering. When they oppress us, when they, um, when, when they, when they attack us, when they persecute us, how do we respond? How do we respond? Peter is encouraging these believers to persevere, to demonstrate it by their Christian lives, by living in hope. By resting in a future glory. How are they going to persevere? By resting in a future glory that is revealed in the day of salvation. That is how these believers are going to persevere through these trials. So where does Peter begin? Um, Sort of as a general framework structure of this letter, um, where does Peter start? How is he going to accomplish this? That's his goal: to encourage these believers to stand strong in their faith. How, how is he going to do that? Um, what would he say? What should he say? Where would he start? And I think, as I as I go through this letter and just understand all the elements and the, and the flow of it, I, I'm a little bit I was, I think, a little bit surprised at where he starts. Um, Remember, he's writing to persecuted believers. You'd think he'd kind of get to that right off the fact. I mean, he makes reference, he acknowledges that fact in the beginning here, but he really doesn't start with their opposition as the foundation of his letter here. Peter begins by explaining, first and foremost, right away here in verse 2, we'll get to in a moment, the, the reality of who we are in Christ and what God has done for us. And I think, rightly so, he doesn't. He doesn't jump right away to to dealing with the issue at hand, um, but he starts by laying a theology of found, or sorry, a foundation of theology. And you see how this letter moves from really a, 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 a knowledge based at the beginning, a theology, and then sort of moves on to the application, the practical application. And th- the question is, why? I mean, why does he start there? Why is theology so important? I think it's important because theology really impacts how you live. Theology, that your view of of yourself, your view of God, has a huge impact on how you live your life. Because if you know who you are, you will know how to live. Because how you live comes from who you are. And if you know who God is, and what he has done, you will know what he wants and how he wants you to live. We have to have that right, proper foundation and understanding. And I think that's why theology is so important. Um, you know, there's debate, what's, you know, how important is theology, you know? Um, do we really need to understand all of this stuff? Can't we just sort of have this, this simple faith? I don't, I don't think so. I think theology is very important. I think it's, it's foundational because it's, it's the, the theology is what we build our understanding upon and that really has an impact on our lives. You know, some would also say, you know, is it, you know, shouldn't we, isn't it just about loving Jesus, right? You know, we should just love Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus, and that's really all that we need. But I would say, how can you love someone that you know nothing, that, who you know nothing about? You know, the, the illustration would be like with my wife. I love my wife. Um, how can I really love her if I don't know her? You know, at the beginning when we were first married, you know, I said I loved her, but I didn't really know a lot about her. I love her so much more now because I know her so much more. I have a deeper knowledge of her and experience with her that builds my love for her. So you understand that this, 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 this foundation that that needs to be built upon. This that theology is essential for our spiritual growth. If we're building on a on a wrong foundation, it, the the fruit that will come out of that won't be um, totally right. And we need good theology to persevere. And that's why Peter begins here um, with this foundation of theology. And that's sort of the flow of his letter. Now, um, he begins, let's move on to verse 2 and, and spend the rest of our, our service focusing on, on, on what he says here right you know, off the bat. Peter begins in verse 2 by explaining and clarifying the work of the triune God in the lives of these believers. And he begins by referring to these believers as the elect. Verse 2, elect— according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And election, I think, is one of those things that, for most of us, we'd probably rather not talk about it or think too much about it, um, because it raises a lot of questions when we really think about it and, and try to understand it. What does Peter mean when he refers to these believers as the elect? Whenever the scripture uses the word elect, it is referring to those whom God has chosen or elected unto salvation. And that sounds controversial. It really does. Um, There's there's really no debate about the fact that God elects um, those to salvation. Um, Election is very clearly taught within scripture. Um, That word election is used, or the elect, is used often. Um, The question really is whether God elects individuals based on knowing, based on him knowing that they would choose him, or rather it was based upon his sovereign choice. That's really where the the debate lies, and Christians have lined up on both sides of that issue um, for many years, and even as it was announced this morning, in a couple weeks, um, God willing, there will be a conference that will talk about this subject, and um, we'll will hopefully explain the two views and understandings of this. Um, but the whole concept of election is scriptural. And, it, and, and Peter uses this word. He refers to these believers as the elect. When Peter refers to these believers as the elect, he is clarifying who he is speaking to. He is speaking to the elect, God's chosen people. And he's reminding these believers that they belong to God. They are his chosen people. And I want to dwell upon that for a moment, because I think there's some significance there when, again, we think about it within the context of who this letter is written to. Um, They are primarily, I believe, Gentile believers. And the Gentiles were not God's chosen people. The Gentiles um, were, in many ways, outsiders. And and. You know, there was this ostraci- ostracization that took place for those who, who, you know, were not Jews. They felt ostracized because they were not God's chosen people. And the Jews knew that they were, and others knew that they weren't. And, but in Christ, these believers, these Gentiles had been grafted into the vine. And, think about for a moment what it would have meant for these Gentile believers to be called the elect of God, God's chosen people. And for us, by extension, God, to, to understand, because we are all Gentiles, to understand that God has extended his grace, not just to the Jews, but to all men. And I think there's some significance there. I think that that had a lot of meaning. Maybe it doesn't so much to us as we are sort of removed from that Jewish culture, but I think it had a lot of meaning to those believers in that day. And Peter goes on to describe what um, was done to bring these chosen people, these covenant people into relationship um, with the triune God. And um, we see that there are all three persons of the Trinity, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together to bring about um, their salvation, to bring about our salvation. And there's, there's three phrases, three prepositional phrases here. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit— And through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And I think that's amazing when we really consider that it is God, that that God has given all of himself. We see all of God working together for our salvation. And he 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 highlights that fact, and and we'll we'll break this down and try to understand a little bit more of of how this triune God is working to bring His covenant people into relationship with Himself. So we begin here um, with this um, first section. It says, "According to the foreknowledge of God the Father." So what is Peter saying here? He he makes reference um, to foreknowledge or being foreknown by God the Father. Um, the word is um pro um, which is um, basically pro is before ginoskos to know, um, so to know before. And I think the most simple understanding of this is that God knew God had for God had knowledge beforehand of what would happen. And that's absolutely true. There's no question about that fact. That we, we understand the attributes of God. That God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He sees everything. Um, and therefore he knows everything. He is omniscient. Um, and and he is that because he transcends time and space. Um, he, he is not bound by the limits of man in the sense that we are bound in time and space. And that's hard for us to understand. How is it that God is within eternity, yet he's interacting with us? These things really baffle my mind, and I think they're they're hard things to understand. But Peter knows this fact, and um, he he even makes reference to it in his second letter um, when he he talks about a day is as a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is as one day. It's this idea that God is is in essence removed from time and space; he is in eternity. So it's you know it's. He's he's not he 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 has the ability to to know and see and understand the future from our perspective. So for God to know something about the future, in in essence, is really to know about it in the present. Again, that's hard to understand. How is it that God can 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 look at the it, it, at our future, but for Him, it's it's it's, a, it's a, something that He knows. He sees that. But my question is 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 when it talks about that God foreknew us. I think this this concept goes deeper than simply just God knowing about us or about the future. Yes, God does know about the future from a human perspective, but when Peter says that God knew us before, as it's it's, it's literally translated, I don't think it's simply he simply means that God knew about us, but that God knew us beforehand. This is a deeper relational knowledge that God knew us, almost like the, the reference of, of Adam knew his wife. This is a, a deep-rooted knowledge. And I, one of the reasons I believe that is because in verse 20, he uses the same word, Peter uses the same word, when he's speaking about Christ. Um, and he says that that God the Father, um, that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The exact same word that he uses there. He's speaking about his relationship with Christ and that it was manifest for us in the last day, but but even before time, God knew Christ. And God the Father did not just know about Christ and what he would do, but he knew Christ. There was that relational knowledge. And God knows who are his own. Even before we are born, John chapter 10, verses 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know them and they follow me. And there's there's a contrast also with God not knowing us. Um, in Matthew chapter 7, um, Jesus says um, to those who would come to him at, at the last time and say, Lord, Lord, you know, did we not do all these things? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't know you. And we say, well, why is this important? Why is it important the fact that God knew us beforehand? I think, I think it's important because the consequences of that are so great, if we are not known by God, simply put, we do not get into heaven. The word I, to, and to hear those words, I never knew you, are the worst words that anyone could ever hear. So to be known by God should be our greatest concern. Not just to know God, but to be known by God. And Think of think of it in this way. This is a simple illustration of just how how important it is that we are known by God. Imagine if I were to go to England and visit the um, go to Buckingham Palace, and I wanted to go see the Queen. And I walk up to those gates and I ask the guard who's standing there. I said, "I'd like to come in and see the Queen." The guard's not going to let me in, and and I could say to him, "Well, I know I know the Queen. Can't you let me in?" It's not going to make any difference. My my claiming knowledge of her doesn't necessarily make the difference it is important in a relationship but it doesn't make the difference in terms of admitting me into the the palace now suppose at that moment that the queen were to come walking by this would like likely unhappened but imagine if the queen were to walk by and in that moment said oh hey ben how's it going that guard would say oh you know him yes i know him okay now i will admit you in and i think that just illustrates the fact that 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 God, that the important thing is that God knows us. That is so important. And and again, linking it back to that verse of those in the last day who will come to God and say, "We, we don't, we know you, we know who you are. And he says, I don't know you. I don't know you. And it just shows how fundamental and how important it is that we are known by God. And that we have a relationship with God. So many people know about God but they don't truly know God and they are not known of God. They do not have that relationship. And this is a cause for each of us to examine our lives and say, do we know him? And can we say that he knows us? Can we say that he knows us and that we know him? We have that relationship, that deep knowledge relationship. If you don't know or have a relationship with the Lord, I would urge you to seek The Lord, while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Psalm 145, verse 18 says that the Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, and to all that call upon him in truth. Call out to the Lord and seek him. You will not be denied. He will not turn anyone away. Let's move on. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. We are elect, we are the elect through the sanctification of the Spirit. So it is the Spirit that sanctifies the elect. Um, To be sanctified is simply to be made holy, to be washed. We are cleansed, we are washed of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. We know that. Um, But it is through the sanctifying work of the Spirit that we are made holy, that we grow in holiness. And this happens um, in the life of every believer. And it is a work that is accomplished through the Holy Spirit. We see the, now the second person of the Trinity working towards our salvation or working um, in our lives. And in Philippians it says... Um, that, uh, that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So we see this, this, this involvement that we have in our sanctification. Um, but, but knowing ultimately that it is God who is working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But we play an important part in our sanctification because, because, God has called us to that. And that's really what Peter is calling these believers to, is to, to live up to their calling. And in his second letter, he makes a lot more reference to that fact, that, that it is through our sanctification that our election is confirmed. That is, it's shown to be true. In second Peter, he says, wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. He says, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness charity, and if you do these things you shall never fall. We have a responsibility, we have a responsibility as believers in our sanctification. It is the fruit of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that is the proof of our election you cannot be a Christian and not be sanctified. It is impossible and this again is another challenge for us to examine our lives, um, like it says here, to give diligence to make our calling and our election sure. God does at times um, work things in our lives. He brings trials and tests that sanctify us, and we 'll read about those that in verse seven um, when we get to that point here in chapter one um, where he talks about the trials of our faith that purify us. that's the work that God does to sanctify us, um, to prune us uh, in a sense that we would bring forth more fruit and we could be thankful for those things and take courage in, in these things. And that's why Peter he understands that fact and he's encouraging the believers in this, but it is ultimately through the sanctification of the Spirit and giving diligence to that that we are sanctified. Um, as believers. And, like it says here, that, that we are brought unto obedience. And finally, as we wrap up here, um, the third part, um, we are God's elect, his chosen and redeemed people, through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is so foundational, so incredible when we think that it is through Jesus Christ, the sprinkling of the blood of of Jesus Christ. Um, he says, Peter says in verse 18 and 19 For as much as ye know that ye are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversations received by the traditions of your Father, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that we are cleansed, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ that we are cleansed, that we are made perfect and spotless before God, because Christ was the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, that perfect sacrifice once for all, and we are redeemed through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are purchased because the blood of Christ is the only thing that can cleanse us from our sins. It is the only thing that can cleanse you from your sins. Isaiah 118, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be... As white as snow. Imagine that, that we stand guiltless before God. This is who we are in Christ. This is what God has done for us in Christ. We are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ and therefore we are spotless. We are cleansed, we are redeemed, and we can have fellowship. We are brought into fellowship with this triune God. This is what the realities that Peter is laying down for these believers, reminding them of these facts of who we are as children of God and what God has done, Father, Son, and Spirit, in bringing us into relationship with himself. And may this give us strength to persevere in our faith as we face trials, um, as these believers whom Peter was writing to, as they faced opposition and trials. May it give us strength to persevere to the end. Amen.